America's decision to go to war in 2003 and remove the regime of Saddam Hussein in Iraq has shaped much of this century for Iraq, the region, the United States, and arguably the world. As we mark the 20th anniversary of the war, I'm joined by Emma Skye, founding director of Yale's International Leadership Center and lecturer at Yale Jackson School, where she teaches great power competition. I'm also joined by Doug Silliman, president of the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington and previous ambassador to Iraq 2016-2019, amongst other diplomatic postings. And by Paul Salem, president and CEO of the Middle East Institute based in Washington and author of a number of publications. The world has engaged in 12 years of diplomacy. We have passed more than a dozen resolutions in the United Nations Security Council. We have sent hundreds of weapons inspectors to oversee the disarmament of Iraq. Our good faith has not been returned. Those were the words of George W. Bush on the 17th of March, 2003, signaling the start of the war on Iraq. Doug, I want to start with you. Is that a fair representation of what happened in those 12 years leading up to the war? And what motivated the U.S.'s decision to go to war? Hello, Mina. I'm really happy to be here today. And you're starting off with a very difficult question. Um, I'll say, honestly, I was not involved in those discussions in the early 2000s, but did observe them very carefully from the outside. I would say that that statement is half true. There were efforts by the United States to identify a nuclear weapons program, a chemical weapons program, and intelligence that indicated that those two programs continued to exist. So there was uh, a lot of work in the United States to make sure that Iraq was unable to do, for example, what it did in Halabja in 1988 and use chemical weapons either on its own population or in the region. So there was that part of the motivation. That said, I think that there was a decision well before March of 2003 that the United States needed to topple the regime uh, of Saddam Hussein. And this is where my, I, this is pure speculation. I'd be interested in what Emma or Paul also think about this. I met with a number of uh, American neoconservatives over the course of my job in that period. And I think that there was a um, not quite messianic idea that it was possible for the United States to remake the Middle East into a series of stable pro-Western, if not always pro-American democracies and that the populations of Arab countries had been fooled by decades of Arab nationalism, um, anti-Israeli and anti-Jewish rhetoric, um, and then a bit of Islamism uh, into thinking that there was nothing that they could do about their own future. So there was also this idea among some you know, neoconservatives in the Bush administration that it was possible to begin a transition of the Middle East to something that would be more recognizable and more friendly to Americans. So I think that that motivation underlies a lot of the thinking. And it was clear to me months before March of 2003 from my posting in Amman, Jordan at that point, that the decision to go to war had essentially already been made. And the effort was working on building enough international support, especially in the United Nations and with our key allies to make that possible. And you know, it's one of those things where we could probably go over those months leading up to the war, even years leading up to the war, and try to 
discern at what point was that decision made and, and how politically motivated. But Em, I want to bring you in because, of course, the UK was a key ally, uh, if not the key ally in this war, and how the British decision to be a key ally uh, shaped not only the war, but also Britain. Thank you, Mina. I think there's a difference in the British rationale and the American rationale to go to war. I think when you look back at George W. Bush at that time, he had failed to prevent an attack on the homeland. And that fear of another attack, that sense of outrage, the power to do something about it, that was all there. I think when you look at the UK, I think it was 67 Brits were killed on 9-11, but Britain itself wasn't under attack. So you didn't have that same sense of rage and desire for revenge that you had in the US. I think a lot of the British reason to go to war in Iraq relates to Tony Blair himself as leader. And if you think back at the end of the 20th century, America was supreme. It had massive economic power. It was seen as, you know, the dominant, the unipolar power. People talked about the 21st century as another American century. China and Russia were kind of, you know, trying to be friendly, shall we say, to the US. It was a sense that America is the dominant power. And Tony Blair had this great belief that Britain should ally itself as close as possible to America, that this special relationship between the UK and the US was paramount. So I think that was the overriding factor. The other one is Tony Blair's ideology. And he was a great believer in his international community. He set this out in a speech he gave in Chicago in 1999, where he talks about, you know, we need to live in a world where if countries, if rulers are abusing their people, the international community shouldn't let that go. So you have the right to intervene, not only when you are under direct attack and self-defense, but also if people are being horribly abused by their rulers. So Blair, his decision to go with the US went against public opinion in the UK, which was heavily against the war. It went against the Parliamentary Labour Party, which was heavily against the war. So it wasn't as if this was a popular decision at all. And it was he who pushed Bush to go for a UN Security Council resolution because he knew that legitimacy for this war required that internationally in the UK and in the broader world. Now, Paul, to Emma's point, there were key decision makers, key voices, be it Tony Blair, be it, of course, George Bush, Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, Ahmed Chalabi and others who who came together at a certain time and this war happened. I want to ask you from the perspective of different countries in the Arab world who are seeing this come about. Give us a sense of what the thinking was amongst the key players and powers in the region, but also could they have done anything to change it, to stop this uh, train once it had moved? Well, I mean, uh, I mean, as Doug and Emma said, it was a very particular moment uh, in world history. The U.S. was still seeing itself as a unipolar superpower, Russia and China 
were not uh, putting up resistance. The U.S. had, at the beginning of this period, in 91, had a very successful war in the region, right next door, liberating Kuwait. And the fact of the matter was the U.S. thought that it could get away with it and it could grab big parts of the Middle East at a time when nobody could do anything about it. The main countries in the region, well, certainly Saudi Arabia and the Gulf countries, as well as Egypt, uh, as well as Turkey, key players were very clearly opposed, communicated that very directly to the United States. The U.S. ignored that uh, and pushed its way through uh, and bullied its way uh, in that direction. Interestingly, uh, Iran was not, you know, uh, was kind of on the fence because it had a lot, it knew that it had a lot to gain. At the same time, it cannot appear to be supporting it, but in effect, they, in a way, enabled it and encouraged it. So the region, I would say, generally was not in favor of this, uh, although Iran, in an interesting way, had had something to gain. Uh, uh, the war itself, I mean, certainly broke Iraq, and Iraq, in a sense, is still a semi-broken state, but it also broke the region, and we can come back to that. But uh, greatly empowered Iran. Iran sort of was fairly contained, had a foothold in Lebanon, kind of not much else, to where we are today, where Iran, you can say, plays a dominant role in Baghdad, Damascus, Beirut, and Sana'a, four Arab capitals. It uh, put on steroids the Sunni-Shiai war in the region. Uh, it uh, gave a shot in the arm to Sunni radicalism as well as Shiite radicalism. So we can talk about how that war, uh, you know, really changed the region, and 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 that's still the region we live in, uh, and how it affected uh, great power politics uh, as well. Paul, you're absolutely right that there's so much to talk about in terms of the knock-on effects in the region, and all three of you are quite knowledgeable about the region. But before we come back to the Middle East, I want to keep us thinking about the U.S. Um, Emma, you served as political advisor to the commanding general of U.S. forces in Iraq. And you are uh, knowledgeable in how American military not only conducts itself, but sees itself. How would you say America's military capabilities in Iraq were tested and in some ways showed their strength and their ability to take down a regime and an army that was considered amongst the strongest in the region? But on the flip side, wasn't able to actually win the war in the way it thought it would be able to, and to Paul's words of a, an easy success. So when you look at the actual invasion itself, the way that all those resources were marshaled, the way to bring about an invasion with so many different moving pieces, there's no military in the world that have could have carried off what the US did. And the military were very much seeing themselves as overthrowing a terrible person, Saddam Hussein. So Saddam, this evil dictator that the governments were talking about, the need to overthrow, that had oppressed his people for so many decades, there was a sense not only revenging 9-11, but also removing a terrible dictator from the world. So I think when you look at those, you go back to the early footage of how the US military moved in, how it tore down the statues, how it quickly overthrew the regime. The question then came, what was the plan for the day after? And a lot of the assumptions that the war had been based on failed to come into effect. So there was this sense that, you know, there could be chemical weapons, there could be massive displacement. 
So the military wasn't geared up for what happened. So we saw all these international jihadis arrive. We had dropped flyers on the country before the invasion telling the Iraqi army to go home, to not fight. And for the most part, they did. And then they were waiting to be summoned back to barracks, you know, back out and to do their jobs. And that never happened. So they were humiliated. And so from a very early on in the war, you had the chaos. You had Iraqi military and security forces who could have worked with us to stabilize the country, then seeing us as their enemy and turning it against us. So it was a very, very difficult situation. And I think for the U.S. military, they hadn't thought, you know, they expected to be welcomed as liberators. They hadn't planned for the local population turning against them. This is not what the Iraqi exiles like Ahmed Chalabi had said. They had no experience of this. Now, the picture that Emma paints is vivid in terms of the capability of the U.S., but also those moments where actually this story could have been written perhaps differently. I want to ask you from a diplomat's perspective, looking at that, of course, not having direct influence over the military, but also seeing America's capabilities in some ways being so massive and at the same time not being able to meet its objectives, but also a sense of sometimes, I'm sure you've heard this, you get people who ask, you know, they can't be this incompetent. It must be a conspiracy. So was it a matter of incompetence, a lack of knowledge, or was it a matter of events took on their own life? I think actually none of those entirely. I'm not sure. I, I, I did do some work from Amman on a couple of State Department papers that were submitted to essentially answer the question, what do we do on the day after? Which, as far as I can recall, were really not taken seriously either in the Pentagon or in the White House. Uh, but this included things such as better public messaging to the Iraqi civilian population, making sure that key cultural institutions in Iraq were, uh, uh, were protected, and doing whatever was possible, although we were a little bit concerned about um, how to do this, uh, something that doing things that would not end up stoking uh, sectarian tensions. I think that the plan, it was a failure of planning, and I think that failure of planning was largely dictated by the ideological conviction in the White House that this recovery would be an easy recovery because Iraqis would see the worth of getting rid of Saddam Hussein and would welcome the military and then later commercial private sector intervention of the United States in rebuilding their country. So I think it was just people didn't think imaginatively far enough ahead. One of the things that Doug spoke about was this issue of sectarianism, but also referenced, you know, young Shia soldiers in the Iraqi army. I would be one of those Iraqis that argues that perhaps sectarianism wasn't such a big motivator or actor in, in Iraq and much more concerned about what Saddam and his family and closest circle were benefiting and the vast majority of Iraqis, regardless of background, Felt And so, Paul, I wanted to bring you in on this point of sectarianism. I think there's always a tension when we speak about the region, to what extent sectarianism drives certain things or actually is used as a political motivator to divide people. And I wanted to take your assessment of that sectarian lens 
on Iraq, but also where we are in the region today. Yeah, I mean, sectarianism is used. It's used as a tool. It's not an original sort of dynamic by itself. So money counts, power counts. And and in the last 40 years, the money that was being used in the region and the ideology pushed these sectarian identities, groups, armed groups, training, cash, you name it, uh, that had enormously destructive effects in the Middle East. It had enormous destructive effects around the world from 9-11 to attacks in Asia and, and, and Europe. So sectarianism has been turbocharged for the last 40 years. Uh, it's still powerfully there, but I agree with your sort of suggestion, Mina, that it is it is kind of constructed. It's kind of fueled, organized, which gives me hope that if you stop fueling it and organizing it, then there can be other ways of, uh, of doing politics. But of course, that takes time. It takes counter-organization. You have to organize something else. And in the meantime, you know, I'd have to say the Levant is still deeply, deeply mired in sectarianism, made more sustained because of the failures of the states. That Iraq is a semi-failed state, Lebanon is maybe more of a failed state, Syria is almost a completely failed state. Sadly, Yemen, which was basically tribal but not sectarian, has sort of become sectarian. So uh, things haven't been going in a good direction in that sense. So the regional order, at least the Levantine regional order, in some ways is described by you, Paul, in a way that perhaps is hard to explain global order politics through. And it feels disconnected from the changes that we're seeing in global order, even though you had, of course, as you said, uh, the Cold War remnants still playing out in the region. And Emma, I wanted to turn to you, talk about how we look at the global order and how it got appended by the Iraq war and how you think the Iraq war continues to influence our global order today. When America found there weren't any WMD in Iraq, the rationale for being in the country became about developing democracy that Iraq was going to become a democracy that would have this regional impact and would then make peace with Israel. So this whole idea of making Iraq a democracy, huge amounts of effort was thrown at that. America's leadership of the world order was because it was seen to have the best, you know, the biggest military, the best economy, and the best form of governance. Its legitimacy came from America's own domestic way of being. People saw America as a country with freedom, with prosperity, a system that could correct itself. And I think with what happened in Iraq, not only was, you know, a trillion dollars thrown at trying to make this country a democracy and failing to do that, but it was also the way in which the US went about it. So when you think of how America violated democratic norms, the human rights violations, the torture, the targeted killings, Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo Bay, all of this really tarnished the image of America as the standard bearer of democracy and human rights. When it came to Libya, 
Obama really didn't want to get involved, but he was kind of pulled into it by the Brits and the French, Cameron and Sarkozy, trying to show that intervention could be done well. That intervention had a big impact. It was the first time that responsibility to protect was used as the legal rationale. And China and Russia didn't veto the UN resolution for that. But once again, the powers didn't have a plan for the day after. And Libya's civil war has then impacted the Sahel. So when it came to Syria, and Obama basically saying that Assad must go and the opposition get excited that America was going to intervene inside Syria. A crucial step came on the when Obama drew a red line against the use of chemical weapons. And the Brits had a vote in the parliament to authorize, David Cameron put forward a motion to authorize the use of military force. And the parliament, the British parliament, refused to approve that vote. Because when they were thinking about Syria, they were thinking about the Iraq war. So again, that was another knock-on effect. And when you look at Syria, half the population displaced from their homes, half a million people killed. It was almost the end of any concept of an international community. And then we start to see the fallout from the Middle East, the fallout from these wars into Europe. It was like everything started to come home to roost. You had the fallout from terrorism. You had the fallout from the refugees getting on those boats, coming into Europe and creating a backlash. So we saw the rise of far-right parties. We saw you know, the terrorist attacks creating a backlash. Um, all this anti-immigration sentiment. And this, of course, came at the same time as the vote in the UK about the European Union. And I think through all of this, you start to see, you know, when Obama didn't move in Syria, Putin moves in. He then thinks he can move on Crimea because there's not going to be any response from America at this stage. China begins its rise, and America is so obsessed and focused on Iraq and terrorism in the Middle East that it's not looking at what's happening further to the east. You're looking at a different world order, that with the invasion of Ukraine, we have two-thirds of the world's population are either in countries which are neutral or Russian-leaning, and they're not coming behind the West as we know it in support of Ukraine. Would you draw a line, a complex and perhaps long one, but a line from the Iraq war to the reactions two decades later to the Ukraine war? I think for many people around the world, when they see Russia's invasion of Ukraine, they see it in the same terms as America's invasion of Iraq. So I think the Iraq war brought to an end. Pax Americana. The final nail could be seen as the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021. I think with Putin's invasion of Ukraine, we're into a new era, an era that has yet to be given a name. It's a multipolar world of sorts. It's this time of monsters between an old world and a 
new one that's yet to come into being. Doug, I want to bring you in here. Did the Iraq War end Pax Americana? I don't think that the Iraq War ended Pax Americana, but I think it may have set the stage for the decline of the Pax Americana. And I wanted to expand upon one point that Emma made. Uh, During this period, the thing that probably disturbed me most about what was happening with American policy was, I guess, what I would call the militarization of American foreign policy. Starting on 9-11, but really picking up in 2005, 2006, 2007 in Iraq, uh, the military launched, uh, they're, they're so good at acronyms, the GWAT, the Global War on Terrorism. So uh, as Emma points out, we lost a strategic view of the world and America's place in the world and instead focused our military resources on small units, special operations, information operations focused on what we saw as a very shadowy terrorist enemy. It also sucked up a lot of the resources that might have been more productive if it had been put into diplomacy, into international assistance, or frankly, into domestic spending in the United States. During this period, I think that the GWAP, the Global War on Terrorism, significantly refocused America, micro-focused America in many places around the world from the Sahel, Sub-Saharan Africa, the Philippines, in addition to the Middle East, on trying to root out terrorism, rather than looking at what did America contribute to the world, what was America's place as economies and powers of other countries were growing uh, exponentially in many ways because of the Pax Americana, because Europe, China, and other countries were able to put their resources into domestic economic development, expand their economies, improve their economies uh, without the need to spend massive amounts of money on defense. So the answer is to your question is kind of, but not entirely, but it did set the stage uh, for the United States to focus much more on military power as the solution Uh, not diplomacy, not domestic economic development. And yet we see that America has clearly moved away from that, be it the global war on terror, clearly the the Biden administration, even before, I mean, under the Obama administration, under the Trump administration, but absolutely under the Biden administration, walking away from this idea of the global war on terror. So, Paul, what comes in its place? Where is American foreign policy moving towards in the region? And how does the U.S. project its power in the region today? Well, I would say we're kind of in a post-Iraq post War period. Uh, that uh, the 9-11, the Iraq War, the post-Iraq War, uh, the focus on the war on terror, the excessive presence of the U.S. in Iraq and, of course, in Afghanistan and other parts of the Middle East, uh, we are now in a different place. For the United States, maybe for at least seven, eight, nine, ten years, you know, from late Obama administration, through Trump, through Biden. Now, yes, there is a bit of a thread from the Iraq war all the way to the war on Ukraine. And I think it, you know, was a Putin assessment of, you know, that the U.S. can no longer stand a fight and the domestic environment is, you know, disengaged and the U.S. is not going to react. It led him to, you know, to maybe calculate accurately in Crimea and inaccurately in the Ukraine, but the Ukraine war has also redefined uh, NATO relations, U.S. Uh, European relations. You could say the Iraq war kind of broke NATO, uh, given that much of Europe, you know, was against the war. Now, what does that all mean for the United States, for U.S. policy towards the Middle East? 
a number of things that might be a little bit contradictory uh, because the effect of the Iraq war was that the U.S. wanted to leave the Middle East. Uh, uh, Obama came to power promising that he was against, the, he was the only guy against the Iraq war, the U.S. shouldn't be there. Uh, Trump came to power. Similarly, uh, the you know U.S. wanted to uh, uh, get out of the Middle East, but every U.S. president president realized once in office that he could not completely get out of the Middle East. Obama got out of Iraq, was pulled back. Trump wanted to pull out of Afghanistan. They wouldn't. His generals, if you believe that, wouldn't let him. Wanted to get out of Syria. Uh, Biden finally got out of Afghanistan in a disastrous way. On the one hand, there's been this disengagement from the Middle East. There was also a perception, uh, given the shale revolution in U.S. energy and U.S. becoming uh, a, a, you know, a key exporter of energy, that unlike the previous 70 years of U.S. history, the U.S. didn't actually need directly Middle Eastern oil and gas, and it didn't. But uh, the contradictory part of it is the Russian war on Ukraine reminded the U.S. that obviously energy is a global market, and that affects the pump, uh, the price of gas, the pump for President Biden inside the U.S., and it acutely affects uh, Western European energy security, and it's you know obviously dependent was dependent on Russia. So uh, on the energy side of things, uh, the Russian war on Ukraine has raised uh, the energy importance of the Middle East once again for the United States. Oddly enough. You know, the U.S. kind of is sick of the Middle East, but is not leaving the Middle East, continues to have serious interest in the Middle East. Of course, it has allies in the Middle East like Israel and others. And although, you know, the war on terror is no longer the headline for the security and for the Pentagon and counterterrorism, it is still a very, very real and very serious threat. And there could be at any moment another major attack in the U.S. And U.S. security agencies know that, which is why... One of, the, one of the reasons they remain in the region to keep an eye on this threat. Historians will study the Iraq war for many years to come and its impact on America's place in the world. Emma tells us the Iraq war led to the decline of Pax Americana, while Doug says we are seeing an end to the militarization of America's foreign policy that followed the September 11th attacks. Closer to home in the region, Paul explains that there is a need to construct a reality that is post-sectarian as it won't come naturally after so much energy was put into imposing sectarian orders. The chapter is yet to close on the ripple effects of the Iraq war. And yet for a generation of Iraqis who were born after the war and coming into adulthood two decades later, these discussions do not seem as important or relevant. In the next and final episode of the Iraq war 20 years on, I'll be focusing on the present and the future rather than the past by speaking to young Iraqis on how they view their country. This episode is one of a four-part series mapping the Iraq War of 2003. Please listen to all four episodes on thenationalnews.com and major podcast providers. <laughs>